0: As Titanic departed Southampton on April 10, 1912, the great amount of water that the ship displaced and the suction from huge propellers caused a smaller ship, the New York, to break free of her moorings and swing towards the giant. Captain Smith halted the churning of the Titanic's propellers, and the quick actions of nearby guiding tugboats, actions on a razor-thin moment, really, allowed Titanic to continue on its maiden voyage. Because of this delay, though, passengers aboard the White Star Line tender ship the Nomadic soon learned their boarding in Cherbourg that evening would be a bit delayed. The nomadic, small, obviously, comparatively, but stately in its interior decor, as stately as the ships that she carried first and second class passengers to, pitched to and fro in the currents, waiting. Gareth Russell describes the scene so perfectly in his book, The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era, he says, quote, grouped together in the nomadics' stultifying saloon were names that had already earned the Titanic's Crossing, a press created nickname of the Millionaires Special, Asters on the final stretch of their honeymoon, a Guggenheim ending his winter on the Riviera, a presidential advisor emerging from a recuperative stay in Rome, and a celebrated art historian returning to fractious negotiations about the design of the proposed Washington, D.C. memorial to President Lincoln, end quote. This isn't even to mention Lucy Dev Gordon, British fashion designer with international acclaim, or her husband, the Scottish baronet, Sir Cosmo, or Margaret Brown, socialite, philanthropist, soon to be infamous, reserved likely in this moment aboard the nomadic because she was speeding home to a sick grandchild, or early motion picture star Dorothy Gibson or Colonel Archibald Gracie, amateur historian from one of the most moneyed families in New York history. And Gareth Russell writes about all of these people as well. Many of these wealthy had spent their winters in the south of France or Italy and were now headed home for quote the season. Can you imagine the energy on the Nomadic that day? Fatigue Shaking knees, rumbling stomachs, nausea, certainly, and the undeniable buzz of expectation of boarding the grandest ship in the world. They would soon join those already on board, the names we know so well, designer Thomas Andrews, the Countess of Rothes, Macy's owners Ida and Isidore Strauss, British and American money, and a lot of it. The wealthy Americans on board represented what Russell calls, quote, the first few generations of American millionaires who had led the surge that took their country from being the British Empire's most rebellious child to becoming a competitor. And in the years after 1912, its successor, Russell's aim is to explore the voyage as a microcosm, as he calls it, of the unsettled worlds of the Edwardian upper class on, as his book so beautifully shows, the cusp of upheaval. And he does so with the true craft of a writer, the kind of writer that picks up emotion in their palm when they pick up their pen. But also he does so as an academic whose research skills are extraordinary. And truly, I learned so much about methodology simply from talking with him his efforts to bridge Titanic stories with wider historiography, with the narrative of the 20th century, is important and moving. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is the Ship of Dreams with special guest, author Gareth Russell. there. I am going to get to the interview with Gareth super quickly. I promise I know that's what you're here for today. <laughs> I just want to let you know, uh, he and I have quite an in-depth conversation about the complexities of the lives of several of Titanic's first class passengers. And I think you'll agree with me that they're really important conversations. If you follow the pod, you know I talk a lot about titanic mythologies, these long held visions of some of the storied passengers, and we address a lot of them in a very blunt way. And it's quite refreshing. And the reason that I do this podcast, we also talk importantly about the creation of historical narrative, and how a person's own beliefs and emotions and prejudices inform how they interpret something, which if you know me, (laughs) at all on this pod, you know, is one of my most beloved themes. Gareth's book was essential for me a couple of years ago as I dipped my toes back into Titanic history after I'd taken a bit of a hiatus in my life from it. And honestly, the book was a huge impetus in me working towards this podcast. I also want to mention (laughs) that we made it through the entire talk here without mentioning that Gareth himself has a fantastic podcast that you absolutely should be listening to. It's called Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, and he has several wonderful episodes about the Titanic plus loads more. Also, the past few days, I've been listening to the audiobook of his study of Catherine Howard, The Fifth Wife of Henry VIII. It's called Young and Damned and Fair. Oh, fantastic title. Uh, and it's stunning as well. So I encourage you to seek out his other work, even if it's outside the timeline of history that you typically read in. And also at the end of this talk, he lets us know what his next book is. And it's exciting. All right. I will delay no more also some breaking news. Gareth Russell may be the only person who has ever put the tiniest dents into the Cadillac of my love for James Cameron's Titanic. Um, I'm kidding. Maybe? I don't know. We'll see. You'll hear it. (laughs) You'll hear it. It's amazing. All right, Gareth, thank you for taking the time for Unsinkable. And guys, enjoy my talk with Gareth Russell. All right. Hi there, Gareth Russell. Thank you so much for being here. We are going to discuss, of course, your wonderful book, "The Ship of Dreams: The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era." Thank you so much for being here. We were chatting before we started to record, and I was basically fangirling um, for for this book. And I just want to let you know when I did a poll among my listeners, trying to get a sense of what books they wanted me to talk about and feature hands down, this was the most mentioned book, and you were the most mentioned author. I think every third message that I got was your book. Um, so this is exciting for listeners. And I would love to just, I know, you know, you've written on a lot of different topics. But in terms of this book specifically, what brought you to Titanic? That's kind of always the question that that I love to start with is, what was your sort of journey to to writing this book?
1: Well, firstly, thank you um, to everyone Or every third message is very flattering, (laughs) uh, um, considering just kind of the corpus of titanic literature that is out there and and these incredible books. Specifically, the road that led to mine was actually probably my family. Um, The book is dedicated to my great-grandparents, Thomas and Elizabeth, who were, I was lucky enough that they were alive for, I think, the will say the first decade of my life and they had been alive in Belfast as children when the Titanic was built and left. And they told me a lot of stories about it as I was growing up that really just sparked my to complete fascination. I mean, I think at eight or nine, which is sort of like the like the the fatal age um for boys mm-hmm. becoming like a, a obsessed with some, I, I think I, I used to be obsessed with trains and then it became the Titanic. I I was I just read everything I could and had always always been fascinated by it but it was not it, it's not something that tends to interact a lot with with the concept of the subject of history, the study of history. Titanic tends to exist in its own stratosphere you you don't really get courses that would mention it a lot i both my degrees are history and it would never even really have come up and i don't know how often there's been an attempt to bring all this kind of wonderful wealth of knowledge about the titanic that i had loved for so long into a a wider context of this world that created it and that was coming to an end around the time of the Titanic's career. And so that's what the book was. The product is sort of a lifelong obsession and a desire to weld it more to to wider history as a subject.
0: One, yeah, I, I was just nodding along as you were saying. I, you know, similar story. I, I obviously didn't grow up in Belfast. I mean, that's amazing to have that close of a connection to Just kind of imagine what it would feel like to have family members that actually got to see the ship. That's yeah. pretty incredible. I think, you know, one of one of the... The top questions that I get asked, and I need to do a lot more research on him before I would even venture to do an episode. But when I think about your book, I think about Belfast and I think a lot about Thomas Andrews. And obviously you feature, you know, so many of the first class passengers in great detail. But I think... One of the important things your book does is really give a very great sense of who he was as a person and also set up the you know kind of political and labor history of what's going on yeah. in, at the time, particularly in Belfast. And so I think that that kind of ties in. So I, I mean, my my listeners are always asking me what I think about Thomas Andrews. And of course, my, my initial answer is just, I mean, I, I adore him. I want to read more about him. I need to read more about him. To speak a little bit about him in terms of kind of the... You know, you're at obviously the title of your book we're at the end of the Edwardian era. Mm. Uh, these class disruptions are obviously on the verge of really breaking open. There's labor problems going on, in I, you know, in in Belfast. But Andrews is this almost kind of modern figure? Do you think for how he's interacting with laborers, with people that are mm. building the Titanic, people that are working on the Titanic? So, I, obviously, he comes from wealth, but yeah. is he kind of a transitional figure? Do you think is he kind of modern in the way that he views? his workers
1: that's really interesting i hadn't thought of it in that in that context and, and on the subject of thomas andrews i am where I'm at, his home is like yeah. seconds behind me that's um, yeah. <laughs> so and his his wife helen passed away in a home that's like three minutes, the other direction.
0: You're like right in the, you're yeah, in Yeah, no, the, it's the, weird. The, the energy is like, <laughs> if you believe in like reincarnation and energies and all of the, you know, it's all, you've, you're like breathing the air that yeah, they it's, breathe.
1: Uh, in. <laughs> the yeah, it's, yeah. Um, so that's such an interesting question. Yeah, look, I mean, he absolutely was someone who was very aware that labor dissatisfaction could erupt at any moment he had seen it happen really unexpectedly in uh, in 1907 and 1908 and that he believed that it had been preventable and that there should be better safety and better conditions we can see him in his letters writing to co- younger colleagues saying by the way you have holidays owed to you you have you have like vacation days that you haven't taken and make sure you take them I I sort of, I mentioned in the book just a little bit because I think this surprises people. Yes, he is a very modern person in that regard, but he was also, and this comes from one of his his own relatives, he was an imperialist. He was a very very strong believer in the British Empire and in you know he believed in things like naval rearmament and in a really strong mm-hmm. British uh, military presence at sea, which would be which we would associate more with that era and less with what came after it. Mm-hmm. We know that his whole family were extremely against the idea of Irish independence from Britain. Mm. They signed the Ulster Covenant, which was sort of the largest, at that at that stage, it was the largest um, act in Irish political history of mass mobilisation of people in the North who, who didn't want to Ireland to leave Britain. But interestingly, actually, when you say that, I suppose we can't say that being pro-Irish independence is modern and anti-Irish independence is, is antique, because, of course, northern ireland largely exists comes into existence 10 years later because of the activities of people like thomas yeah. andrews so certainly you have beliefs that lean more towards a conservative bent i think like a lot of um there would be cold in british political history wet conservatives they would and in contrast to say more free market libertarian we would call them dry conservatives he came from, as you say, land money, landed money out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And that older landed agrarian money doesn't always fit really comfortably with, you know, kind of this new plutocratic industrialized wealth that Harland and Wolfe is sort of the the, 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 the yeah. child for. And yeah. so for him, I think he he yes was very aware He's He stood between two worlds. He stood between this old weather conservatism of you you treat your yeah. workers well. I also think maybe there's an element of just genuine compassion because I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know how involved he was with walking around the yard and checking everything. Yes. So I don't think yes. he had the option of kind of looking the other way from the wounds and the damage that could be done to the workers. He could see it mm-hmm. himself. But yes, I do think he was aware that... You couldn't ask these people to keep turning out ships. And, you know, for someone who was so patriotic, the idea that workers at the heart of, of his home country should be in bad conditions for something that didn't sit well with him. So I think a fundamentally good person who had some quite conservative beliefs that did influence him and some quite um, modern beliefs that interacted with them. So he's um, off his time and slightly ahead of his time at the same time. <laughs>
0: It's kind of how I started to think about him. Exactly, he's almost—it's almost a transitional, just like mm. when Titanic happens. You know, I mean, it, right? The Edwardian era is considered through the start of World War One, even though I mean, Edward died in nineteen ten, right? right? But to, we still call this the, the Edwardian, Edwardian era until okay.
1: Yeah, because there's no there. For instance, I mean, so Edward the Seventh dies in May nineteen ten. Britain enters the war in August nineteen fourteen. Edward the Seventh's son. The current queen's grandfather was George V, but we don't call it like the second Georgian era. It just doesn't happen. There's no real shift in values at all from Edward VII to George V. So that whole period, some people actually call the whole thing the long Victorian period. I think that's probably (laughs) stretching it a bit. But I see why. (laughs) It's often hard to pin some of these people down. You know, for instance, even King George V is... Fairly very right wing in his views, but a lot of people are suddenly surprised that actually he he impresses a lot of liberals with how willing he is to kind of push negotiation and push compromise and mm-hmm. uh, at the heart of political life. So I think it's an era full of complexity, and I think you're absolutely right. Thomas Andrews, like the Titanic, is sort of somewhere between yesterday and tomorrow. Their there today is is off. There's a lot of new ideas coming in really really quickly, but it's within the context of a society that in terms of class. Isn't as rigid as it was a hundred years ago, but it still has a has con- clear older concepts of class and, and hierarchy.
0: Yes, and do you think? And this, and and we had kind of emailed about this. This is my <laughs> my other kind of Andrew's related question. Although I do think this leads my mind to a lot of Bruce Ismay questions as well, because I think I think judging from what you wrote about Ismay, I think we probably would agree on him being you know, a much um, kinder and more compassionate person sure. than some people have written him to be. Totally. Um, but but, 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 in but terms I think
1: also incredibly annoying. Um. Yes.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> no, and that's this, I did an episode on Ismay and, and listeners, you know, if you haven't heard that one, Definitely check that one out at one at some point. But yeah, I mean this was that was kind of I guess let's talk about Ismay for a minute. You know, my conclusion, and I I died as I'm sure you did, you know, dug into his relationship with his father as well yeah. and yeah. and you know, his home life and and the death of did he lose one child or two children. But you know, by all accounts, yeah, it could be a really annoying, um yeah. <laughs> aggressive, aggressively, you know, maybe a little obsessive about things. Um I, I I very awkward.
1: Im- yeah i really did i think that's so interesting that there there are a lot of moments that's that's the that's a perfect word obsessive there are a lot of moments with people talking about ismay who knew him where you get the impression they don't know why he's still talking and he's he's fixated on something so yeah. you know maybe there was a there was a um there was a touch of something obsessive compulsive, maybe in his personality. I, I, I would, wonder if right. it
0: was, yeah, it's some sort of maybe mild personality. I mean, I, I don't want to use the word disorder. So, I, you know, I, but, no, but but I know, but I know sort you, of, yeah, 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 like some sort of, something that maybe, you know, now we would have a name for that maybe they didn't have a name for then. That seems, it, Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you know, in his relationship with Marion Thayer, which obviously, you know, ties into, yeah, it's, there's some obsession going there. I talk a lot about that in the episode I did on him. So I think that your book does this wonderful job of, of laying people like Andrews and Ismay out and, putting them in that gray area. I I don't like black or white. I think people are gray. And that's, to me, the most interesting thing about a historical person or any person I know yeah, of course. is not necessarily their successes or the moments they were perfect, but their failures and the moments they weren't perfect. And, yeah, um, and
1: it, it makes, that, that's such a good point because I think- the dead don't owe us anything, and I think sometimes we're constantly trying to turn them into stories or morality lessons. And actually, mm-hmm. they're they're a story, and they're a story of the past and of themselves. And I don't think it's helpful to cut out things that will surprise people. I mean, I you know, I'm sh- sure we'll get to him, um, but Isidore Strauss was a was a was a was a surprise um, for this book. He really, really was. And in the same way, Ismay. You don't have to say, but when you're rehabilitating Ismay, he was saint-like. There were things that he did that were really, question, really, really questionable. I really felt for Marion during that correspondence when it takes Marion Thayer when it takes a turn into like well, I don't know what the proper word would be, but sort of faintly repulsively cloying self-pity. Yes, and I mean- let, you, you know. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, she had death. to
0: <laughs> correspond with the. Yeah, she had to correspond with Ismay's wife, right? It's been uh, a while since yeah. I have researched that, but right. I mean, they, she ends up having yeah, to send a message a, to Ismay's yeah. wife. Yeah.
1: I love that moment because it's a really, really it's it's a socialite in full gear. It's her yeah. knowing how to use contemporary Edwardian etiquette to get her point across without breaking the boundaries, So what she does is she starts... Marion Therese starts sending all the Christmas cards and all the letters to Florence's mate and JB. All the complexities of their etiquette and their nuances, it takes a, a, a sharp brain to know them and to be able to use them to their own advantage. So that element That's of Marion, I thought, yeah, good for you. <laughs> that was smart. You know that
0: I'd never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, it's isn't it crazy how the story of the Thayers and and you know, and I I just so you know, I've very much encouraged listeners to, you know, they've they've had the book assigned. So they they know to, <laughs> you know, to maybe try to finish the book before listening to the episode. And I encourage that. Although I think, you know, either way would work. I, you know, the Thayers story runs through your book. And mm-hmm. it is kind of insane how much the Thayer's story interacts with Ismay with the actual, with the story we know about, you know, ice warnings and these, this yeah. moment by moment play that, you know, on the Titanic, I love what you said about dead people not owing us anything. And I, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, I did an episode on Helen Candy, and I talked about mm-hmm. this, that we, you know, we have to be cognizant all of the time that we're creating a narrative, no matter who we are, or what our intentions are, we're using these people's story to create a narrative. And and when they were living their lives in the moment that they were, they weren't living out a narrative, they were, (laughs) they were, they were living their lives. And, you know, Ismay, I think, is a perfect example. And back to Andrews, another, I think, moment that sort of illustrates that is, you know, so many people envision Andrews at the clock in the smoking Mm -hmm. room, or at the painting in the smoking room, yeah, as the boat's but Bo- oh my gosh, boat! I said boat. I'm going to be in big trouble. Sure. <laughs> I'll just edit that out. I'll get. I'll, I'm telling you, I'll get seven emails just oh, yeah. even if, oh, even I, if I corrected it. Um, oh. But uh, you know, as the ship's going down, <laughs> this idea that, that that Andrews is you know at the painting in the smoking room. I don't know about you, but I have actually encountered quite a few people that are um so invested in that image of Andrews mm-hmm. that they yeah. they're so invested in that kind of mythology that they can't let it go. And this idea that Andrews was maybe spotted other places on the ship right. after that moment. But can you talk a little bit? Because you, you know, there's a great segment in your book about that. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. How do you think that maybe it's important to break down that mythology a little bit? Because you know, maybe the image of him throwing chairs into the ocean is more important because it Much shows more. how, yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I'd love to hear you just kind of talk about Andrews well, a little bit more in that sense. That's,
1: that's a, that's an interesting point you bring up because I'm sure you've encountered this as well. I've actually, as you said, I've written about other things. I've written a few years ago, a book on the Romanovs, and I've written quite a bit on the Tudors. And both of those also, like the Titanic, have certain myths that enter in and ideas of personalities that enter in that, be, that mean a, an awful lot to people, not because of what the person was, but because what that story has come to mean to the person believing in it. Uh, like, all th- like all things, these things can become Totemic. What I would say with with this is, I, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Thomas Andrews, that particular moment of him at the at the painting at the fireplace in the in the smoking room is an unforgettable vignette. It's why it it's so prominently, movingly dramatized mm. in A Night to Remember and in the James Cameron Titanic, Mm, you know, and it's really beautifully done. That's not to take away from it. It kind of unconsciously mirrors a lot of our myths like Achilles, you know, and choosing to sort of stay forlorn alone in death. It also Mm -hmm. slightly replicates sort of like the imagery of the lives of saints, you know, left alone at the very end, accepting death. It, it, It forms what we call like a hagiographic outline to use a sort of, Nerdy historian terminology for, mm-hmm. but it, but it, but it replicates the idea of both pagan and Christian concepts of of accepting death. And I am, and I, I'm not coming at this from the perspective of saying he didn't do that. That did happen. There was a moment. Uh, we have a very good eyewitness testimony from a steward whose surname I can always remember because it's Stuart. Um so Stuart Yeah, it's John Stuart. Stuart yeah, right, yeah, yeah, John Stuart. Um, yeah. so Stuart Stuart who ha- was usually assigned to uh, work in the veranda cafes which were to which were next to the smoking room. He sees Thomas Andrews and he tells us the story that we've talked about. And in Ship of Dreams I'm not saying that that Stuart was lying. I don't think he was. But the timing doesn't add up. The reason we have a last quote unquote last account that survived is because Stuart did because he then left and got into a lifeboat. So the timing of him being in the smoking room at close to the end is mm-hmm. simply imp- is impossible. We have another Stuart Cecil Fitzpatrick who also survived. Um, he was a young man from Kilkenny, and he in Ireland. And and Fitzpatrick is very very clear on this when he. He describes seeing Thomas Andrews on the bridge next more or less next to him when the the dip happened and the wave sort of crashed over the bridge and that's what uh, washed Kilkenny uh, sorry, excuse me Fitzpatrick overboard so we have another steward giving an eyewitness testimony that they saw him elsewhere that was the last known sighting of him you have sightings collected in 1912 by an Irish writer called Sham Bullock who was commissioned to write a biography of Thomas Andrews by a unionist politician here called Sir Horace Plunkett. He tracked down, I think it was two, three. He got three accounts of people who saw him elsewhere. So this isn't new. They saw him go up onto the deck and start throwing um, steamer chairs, the wooden deck chairs, overboard at the end. That is far more in keeping with his personality. Everything he'd done earlier in the night, you know, he he methodically started in first class. A deck, B deck, C deck cabins, going in, checking, get up on deck, encouraging, you know, helping Passengers into the lifeboats telling both Mary Sloan and Annie Robinson, you know, put the life jacket on, let them see you go up, get in the boat. You know, him going, him trying to talk about moving the third class up. There's, he's very, very busy from more or less the moment he tells Smith that the Titanic is going to sink. Andrews is really active trying to help people. I do think there comes a moment, you know. After one one AM, so you know when things are really starting to get very serious, where he has this horrible moment of wobbling, and I think it's chapter fifteen. I talk about it and I say that you know I I can't imagine what. Was going through his head when he, by this point, it has to be clear there's no rescue ship that close by. There's still, you know, there's a lot that's starting to dawn on them on just how bad this situation is. And that's when he's seen in the smoking room, bowed down uh, with, with, I mean, I don't know whether guilt, let's say grief, certainly. And so
0: he's like regrouping. He's almost, yeah, he's almost dead, so. I, taking I, a moment to, to process. And then he, as you're saying, and then he, goes back out right. it's like he needs that time to process yeah look this ship. is
1: the thing with him he's a kind of buck up kid sort of guy he you know that's what i get from all from the the, the sports he played here in belfast and at his hometown in cumber uh very active in uh, the north down cricket club where they used to nickname him the admiral was his nickname because he loved the sea so much even then he was someone who played through to the final wicket, kind of. I think he was someone who just kept going. And there's a there was a there's a beautiful story about him at Ardara, which is their manor house um, out near Cumber, where he grew up. Where he was a beekeeper as a child, and that his his hive wasn't doing too well, and so he brought tray after tray in. By hand and fed them sugar water to try to help them to live. He cares for bees, he cares for workers, he cares for his family, he cares for the people on this ship. This is someone who does things and keeps doing things. And Thomas Andrews looks like a kind of martyr and saint if we imagine. That that's the last moment in the smoking room, the sort of the acceptance of the waves crashing over him. And I I don't detract from, there were many qualities he had that that were extraordinary, but gentleness is not always weakness. And I don't think this is someone who stood and accepted. I think this is someone who kept trying to help people right up to the end. And he was always someone, his goodness was not simply a state of being nice. His goodness was a state of action. It was a useful goodness. Mm-hmm. And, and to go back to this, the other steward I talked about, Cecil Fitzpatrick, Cecil tells us that one of the last things Andrews was doing was taking a life jacket to Captain Smith and basically saying, put it on. And that tracks with everything else we have seen him do that night this all tracks if you look at what he's then doing from that moment after the smoking room finding something doing something that will supplement floating in the water because there aren't enough lifeboats you know there he can now tell that so he's going he's throwing deck chairs overboard he's getting the captain put your life belt on um so that he, he's still right up to the end Yes, terrified. Yes, exhausted. I can't even begin to imagine the cocktail of sort of adrenaline and horror going through his mind. But he's not standing by the fireplace in the smoking room when the end comes. This isn't just a a personality hunch. There are eyewitness testimonies. There are four eyewitness testimonies that he was elsewhere Mm -hmm. after the smoking room. And actually, Jon Stewart never said, by the way, that was the last anyone ever saw of him. He said that was the last... I saw of him that he
0: saw that yeah. because he got on a lifeboat. Yeah, Absolutely. He, yeah. yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. Everything I've read about Andrews. I love this version of him on, on the decks throwing or the chairs over and 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 putting a lifeboat on yeah. Captain Smith or trying to at the end. I love that version much better. And I will tell you one thing I've noticed in my research is that there are a lot of, especially with these first class passengers, that some of the mythology is is sort mm-hmm. of around, you know, Astor, Guggenheim. Right. They are the Thayers there's actually in you know some of whether it's third class testimony or other memoirs there's often a lot of evidence to the contrary of right. <laughs> of what some of these myths are, but people you know a lot of people don't want to hear it for some people, there is just one narrative of what right. the decks looked like that night, which was you know the noble men going down with the ship. I am firmly in the camp of. For any of them, there's probably a lot more chaos and fear um, than yeah. sometimes we want to admit. But I think for a lot of them, people like Andrews, they they channeled that fear into action. Right. So for me, that's the best way to think about some of these people is that not that they weren't scared. Of course, they were scared. Of course, yeah. they were. And, and I don't know why in the mythology for Titanic, people are so invested in this narrative of you know, these first class men not being fearful or, oh, they've got their cigar and their brandy and they're facing death in this, you know, noble, unfearful hinched. way. Yeah.
1: Um, well, yeah. look, I mean, the thing is, you actually have courage, not to be, sort of become un- unduly philosophical, but courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is what you do despite fear.
0: absolutely. And if yes. you
1: have a 46,000 ton ship sinking in the dead of night into sub-freezing waters and don't feel fear there's probably something like wrong with you
0: medically right yeah like yeah maybe, like psychologically you, yeah you're probably a sociopath
1: yeah. and i think yeah. um i actually think trying to say they weren't afraid belittles the sacrifice that exactly. they make.
0: because
1: yeah. andrew's at some point it probably dawns on him he's not going to see his two-year-old daughter Elizabeth ever again.
0: Heart, heartbreaking. Yeah.
1: Um. And bear in mind also for all of these men, maybe if some of their wills were in good posi- position, but let's say for, um, for uh, particularly for a lot of second class men, but for a fair number of first as well, your wives can't get jobs. It is still very, very rare for women to get work. Helen Churchill Candy is an exception, and that's why she wrote a book called "How Women Can Make a Living." She
0: literally wrote the book on she it. She literally it, because
1: because someone had to. Someone um, needed to there is there is almost no first class woman i'm saying almost and painting in broad strokes for the sake of an argument there is no first almost no first class woman who emerges more financially or socially stable through the loss of her husband. Most of them are stuck with debts. most of them don't have a breadwinner. even if they inherit money, they have to live off a of trust they're not given full. Con- mm-hmm. so the, so even if you look at it from a really mercenary point of view, of course you must be thinking what is my wife going to do if I don't live have I are my is my will in order? Is there a will? You know, all these things. What about my are, kids?
0: Yeah. yeah absolutely. What
1: are, you know, so it's actually not that they're sitting there lighting up their cigars and having their brandies and thinking, hooray. I think for a lot – or not hooray, but, well, this is it.
0: <laughs> well, um, some accounts would – I mean, so the way some people write about it, you would right. think that well, Guggenheim was there with his brandy shouting, I'm so happy I'm going
1: down I'm going down like, I don't know. I'm like living like Odysseus. Like, I, no, I don't get it. And, and what I think is these myths grew afterwards. As you say, there's a lot of eyewitness testimonies that don't back this up, including people. some of the people who are usually in that number. Colonel Gracie's a big example where he says, you know, our voices caught in our throats. And they were part of a culture that valued a masculine discretion, valor, a, a lack of giving, you know, there was certainly a, a concept of of not giving in to emotions as being a sign of strength but even he says you know so I believe him when he says the the physical signs of it were our voices catching in our throats because they've been trained not to show it and there's something more moving about that about them all kind of standing together and 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 he thinks this is like Troy. This is like that moment in the Iliad where he, he thinks of a school lesson he had as a child of all the heroes of Troy whose fear made their voices catch in their throats. So out of the mouths of eyewitnesses, one of the men who, probably one of the few survivors of that sort of bunch of first-class men shipped towards the end. That Colonel land, Gracie is yeah. very, very clear that they were afraid. And, and that makes the bravery a lot of them showed more remarkable and more commendable to me. But you can also flip it to, it's not just stories, positive stories. A lot of people are very, very wedded to, as we've talked, Ismay. I know that there have been, you know, when you try to say, there's not really a lot of evidence that, that Lydia Duff Gordon really more or less like threw money at the officers and bribed her way into the lifeboat. The Duff Gordons, Ismay... They function as the flip side of the myth because we tend to, when talking about wealthy people, have two paradigms. We have sort of noble heroes, or we have Cal Hockley in From the Titanic. We have we have like villainous. Self- no, that's
0: a good that's a good example because that's exactly how you're right. Yeah. It's like we envision them in one of two camps, right. nowhere in the middle. Yeah,
1: um, and you know there and certainly the duff gordons and ismay are the example of what people when people wanted started to turn the titanic into a morality tale then you have to have villains it can't be the dead because that's um not not a good show as they would say in the edwardian period yeah Yeah. so it's not the captain's fault it was going too fast because he's dead so it's ismay's because he had the bad manners to live you don't want to go after uh, first cl- you know first class women who are widows. so you go after Lady Duff Gordon, who was in a lifeboat that didn't have enough people and who didn't lose. And anyone. her husband
0: also survived yeah, exactly. so she didn't lose anybody she was with on the trip. So and, yeah. There's no
1: doubt in my mind. I mean, by the way, I am not in any way comparing the two in terms of bravery. But the Countess of Rotha's, I think, was in, was an incredible. I mean, I just was an awe of her and her bravery and her decency in the lifeboat. Her and her, and her relative Gladys Cherry, her husband's cousin, they they said on the Carpathia, you know, we we're so grateful we didn't lose anyone. They weren't traveling with with any male relatives. But I don't know if the Countess of Rothes would have been treated as kindly by the media when she reached New York, if her husband, the Earl of Rothes had been with her and survived. I, it, I, I don't think... Yeah, so,
0: it's a good point. No, you know, it's a good point. And um, there's the great, I think, it's, I think it's in your book, there's the great quote from Margaret Brown about the Carpathia, right? And she says the men are kind of... Hanging their heads and walking yeah. around, like what does she call them, sick puppies or something like right. that? But she joins
1: um, in. She kind of she she goes after Ismay early and hard.
0: It, she's an interesting yeah. figure, and in that's yeah. what made me think about. You know, she's very blunt, uh, which does match, I think, with some of the mythology of her. <laughs> um, I do want to touch on her, but really quickly, you mentioned, um, and this ties in with everything we've been talking about, fantastic. But Gracie, you mentioned Gracie. Yes. So I actually just made a connection about him that I. I don't think I had fully known. And you'd mentioned Isidore and Ida Strauss. Yes. So let me make sure we're on the same page before I mentioned the Gracie thing. But when you said they were surprising, mm-hmm. do you mean in terms of his little bit about his history and say the confederacy is that yeah. maybe what yeah okay so the maybe yeah. talk a little bit because i have a gracie story that also sort of i think ties in in the sense of like yeah. something you don't know about one of your favorite first class titanic passengers but it talk really, about that it because- really
1: surprised me and i just want to say yeah. so by, by way of a preamble um the Strauss historical society were one of the most commendable helpful impeccable organizations i've ever had the privilege to to reach out to and work with they did not in any way try to discourage me from talking about this aspect That's of Isidore's great. life. They actually cleared up a, a, a query I had. So so first of all, what I'd just like to say secondly before I go into this is it, this does not apply to Ida. Ida actually was surprising in another way, which is um, her family were in New York. They were on the northern side during the Civil War. Um, like Isidore's, they were, they were first generation German-Jewish immigrants. She was Hessian, he was Bavarian. She was a uh, this like juggernaut for immigrants' rights coming into the United States, used her money really. Yeah,
0: and I shouldn't have lumped that. I should have, like, no, 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 should no, no, have said no, just as... But, that, it, but, but yeah, I know that's important to note. So, but that's yeah. why
1: they're surprising. And she wrote... So bear in mind, I've written about the Romanoffs before, and as I said, and she wrote this... Open letter poem to Nicholas II that <laughs> called to the Tsar, where she just eviscerates Czarism and says, you know, she she goes after Nicholas's religion and says, you know, how can you bow your head in prayer when what your soldiers do to your Jewish subjects? How can you even call, have God's name in your mouth? Like it's really, I mean, it's. I was, it was. I would encourage people to look it up. But, it, but, but it's what's in the book?
0: Yeah, <laughs> but, sorry. Read the book, people. I'm thinking, where is it? it just plug. There. Yeah, just plug your own book. It's no, in that there. A, that was a decent <laughs> plug.
1: And so they work with the educational alliance, and they're both very philanthropic. But uh, Isidore was a blockade runner for the Confederacy in his youth. His father Lazarus left. Bavaria in the aftermath of a failed revolution against the Bavarian monarchy that he had supported, he moved eventually to the United States in the 1850s. So there so Isidore and his family come over to Georgia, so they're south of the Mason-Dixon line and they grow up they grow up in what becomes the Confederacy. Isidore and his brother Oscar, Isidore talks about it a lot less, but the family were initially anti-slavery. Uh, Lazarus and his wife Sarah, Isidore's mother, just couldn't get on board with this. But they did end up forming quite close friendships in their new home with, the, with three local um, Protestant, um, well, pastors, reverends. I, I believe I might have the denominations wrong, but I think it was a Methodist, a Presbyterian, and a Baptist were the okay. three. Yeah, it wasn't Episcopalian. So it was that's Methodist, Presbyterian, and Baptist, and they talked a lot about initially the conversations were about kind of tapping Lazarus's knowledge. They were a Jewish family of Hebrew because they wanted to make sure that their translations of what Christianity calls the Old Testament were you know, as close to the Hebrew as possible. But they also, in these conversations with Lazarus and Sarah, try to convince them that slavery was a good thing and that actually it, that their concerns about it were completely unjustified. Basically, we do know that by the time the Confederacy came into existence, the, the Strausses were slave owners. First of all, these people, we don't even know the names of quite a few of the people who were enslaved in the Strauss household. And their names don't, and their story doesn't appear in, in history books. And I think, well, actually, what you can do is is try, is try to include these stories. To, Absolutely. You know, to, this was a human experience and a horrible one. And also to show the sort of the mundane horror of how these ideas were were fed to newcomers into the South. Isidore does volunteer, for the Confederacy. And I think a lot of people then and later, particularly within the Jewish American community, really struggled with Mm -hmm. their Jewish brothers and sisters who supported the Confederacy and supported slavery. Because bear in mind, particularly when you have a lot of Jewish immigrants coming into America from Imperial Russia and from Eastern Europe, where the persecution of Jews is still rampant. They cannot understand how you can go from a culture in which you were the oppressed victim, into and then, the then oppre- and
0: then it be oppressing, and others. you have yeah. you have yeah.
1: uh, you know rabbis preaching really. I mean, there are some extraordinary sermons, absolutely eviscerating for anyone who who supported slavery or, or the Confederacy. But there are letters from Isidore. He is a teenager at this point, and, and I do say in the book, it's a very different experience from Lazarus and Sarah being persuaded. Lazarus more more specifically, being persuaded by these by by his neighbours in the South to become pro-slavery than it is for the children. Because the children, when you grow... I mean, Oscar Strauss says you just... He was so young when they emigrated. He, he says, well, you you just didn't question it. You, you just grew up with it. But Isidore and Nathan are more difficult because Nathan and Isidore were old older than Oscar. Mm-hmm. And it's Nathan and... Isidore who are sent to the to the slave auctions by their father.
0: I have been researching the um, slave ship Clotilda. I was the last slave ship that brought yes. humans as cargo over. Obviously, they found the ship a couple of yep. years ago. But I've been researching as so I'm going to do kind of a side episode. I'm going to start doing side episodes on um, kind of the cultural memory of other ships and shipwrecks. Mm, and that. it's, that's a really that good idea. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I studied Southern history for so many years. That's my bread and butter, so to speak, weird term to use. But um, I, uh, but I wanted to kind of sink my teeth into this one first. So I've been researching, and obviously, I'm researching the slaveholding south for this and Mobile, Alabama, specifically, which is for listeners, if you haven't, you know, read or you guys aren't up on this. The the ship came into Mobile, Alabama. And then there is a group Which is of Gracie
1: Heartland, isn't it?
0: Is that yes. And so oh. this was <laughs> this was my my <laughs> my husband. My husband was joking. He's like, do you even want to open up this? He said, just shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the metaphorical door. Don't open it. Yeah. I had this moment the other day where I was I was I was looking up something about Gracie And then it's dad, and then, you know, and then it just Mm -hmm. occurred to me. And I see like cotton merchant mobile for Gracie's dad. And I, you know, I, which I've always known, but I never put two and two together. And I'm going to do some more research, but everything I've, I know of that area thus far would lead me to believe that Timothy Mayer, who, brought the slaves and the Clotilda over would have been in like the exact same social circle and economic circle in Mobile as the Gracie yeah. dad. And I and, and disclaimer, listeners, don't get mad at me. I'm not saying I definitively know anything. This is just, I'm just kind it of, would, well, you Well, look, know. the
1: thing is, I mean, I read, for my sins, I read The Truth About Chickamauga, his military book, which you is- You read it? Oh my God, it's the longest book of all time. I actually very <laughs> nearly said- that I thought Isidore was lying on the t- I very nearly put in he has to have lied when
0: Oh that's right because you he, said he, f- you, he yeah. said he
1: finished it. So basically there's, yeah, there's I was no like no the lie. Um there because there
0: is <laughs> Well that's this is the perfect tie in because it's in your book, but there's a great interaction sure. between Gracie, Gracie and Stroud that's a great moment on board the ship. Yeah absolutely. well they meet and, yeah. and they
1: both they're both yeah. they both come from Confederate Stock. Gracie's father had been a general for the Confederacy. Isidore had briefly been a blockade runner before he ended up in in Europe. Colonel Gracie, who was another first-class passenger, wrote this absolute tome of a military history called The Truth About Chickamauga, which his father had participated in, and it was absolutely shredded at the time of publication by Union veteran associations that said that it, yeah. had, it, it just didn't acknowledge the fact that several Confederate commanders were disobeyed orders from the confederate generals because they were they were sort of suicidally reckless and that it was basically a work of neo-confederate propaganda and that it, it completely negated why the the battle happened etc according to gracie's memoirs he gave a copy of this book to Isidore on the first day of the voyage they were up on deck in southampton together and, and saw the moment the ship nearly hit the new york conversations one led to the other And he gives Isidore this book. And on the Sunday, Isidore claims that he has finished the book and enjoyed it. And I just find both of those to be logically (laughs) um, questionable.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, it's like you could have, you just, I mean, that was like the, that's the code, right, with these people. You you sort of say,
1: you can't say, look, by the way, I'm an elderly gentleman. Uh, and if I try to hold this book above my face at night, I might <laughs> suffocate myself. And it landed on me. Yeah. It,
0: you know, <laughs> or or it's so or it's so bad, I might just do that to myself anyway. Right. You I know, might or voluntarily what, yeah. go on. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Or you know, actually, I would love to spend some time with my wife in this voyage. And in order to finish your book, I would have to have started reading somewhere around Cherbourg and look up around Ellis Island. Like there's yes. no you know,
0: not, and no eat no sleep. nothing. Like, um, <sighs>
1: But yeah, he, um, it's interesting because having said all this about Isidore, and sorry, I should say the the letters about the slave auctions are, are, horrendous. I mean, they're, well, they're- that's
0: what, that's what made me think of the Clotilde because I was just thinking like, you know, we can, and I think we're saying the same thing. We can, you know, say all day that maybe they were a better version of this or they did, but when it comes down to it, if you're participating in the ownership of human beings and these slave auctions were the most horrific thing on earth. And so it's, yeah, that's yeah. very hard to think of, you know, we think of Isidore Strauss on the deck with his wife there at the end in that tale right. It's hard to meld those two together. Yeah, well,
1: look, the thing is, actually, I think the point about the slave auctions is a really pertinent point because there is absolutely no amount of contextualising, there is no amount of excuse-making that can be made. If you went to those auctions, you stared right, right at the epicentre of this. You participated in it. This was, they sent their two teenage sons, Nathan and Isidore, to the auctions. Nathan writes back, boasting that he got a bargain when they got a pregnant woman because they, said, because they didn't have to pay for the
0: for the, the he, second yeah. person that was coming it was along. A say, he, yeah. he
1: more or less says two for the price of one. He kind of makes a joke of it. It's, what I can remember reading that letter and it was one of those – I don't know if you've had this in your research, but I remember looking and thinking, I've read this wrong. I have to have read this wrong. I think it's, it's one of those moments where – and I understand you know, some people say – that oh you you know you're taking modern attitudes and you're projecting them back that is not what's happening here there were plenty of people in the 1800s who went, who saw the slave auctions and were psychologically traumatized by what they had seen
0: and did not want to participate you know there are and yeah, yeah and
1: and this is the thing you have to imagine what went on at those you were looking at human beings being put up on an auction block you were looking at someone who was pregnant and there's no mention of the father being bought at the same time, no, so that, they
0: were they would have been torn yeah. apart, never to well, look, see one another one again. There's one of two
1: options. Yeah. Either you know this was, and this was something when I was talking about it with a professor of American history. Uh, one of my modules at, at university was the creation of the Confederacy and the countdown to the Civil War, so I had a decent standing in it. And when I was talking to this professor while writing about the Titanic, they said, "Well, actually, there's one of two options here. One, this lady um, has conceived a child with her husband." Or a fellow, a fellow victim of slavery. That's the father of the child, and they're being separated. Or this woman has been, as happened many. I think this is the tip of the iceberg that we're starting. To look horrible, uh, accidental Titanic.
0: That's uh, okay. I said boat earlier. Yeah, boat.
1: Um, I think one of the sort of the the tip of the historiographical iceberg here is that we're starting to realize. You know, there's no there's no denying how many times women on plantations were coerced into or were victims of sexual assault by the plantation owners or the overseers or and so
0: incredibly common
1: incredibly common and i think you know certainly there is you know people like gracie later tried to downplay it and say it hardly ever happened it's a fiction of northern propaganda so really what nath what what happened at that particular auction that we have their eyewitness testimony for was they bought someone who either had gotten pregnant with someone she loved and they had been separated as a family, or Mm -hmm. she had gotten pregnant not through her own choice and the pregnancy was now inconvenient to the former plantation owners or... And um, that's why she... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which was, you know, now that you're laying it out, if I think about it, and what I know, that was probably the more likely case. If you right, think about okay. that scenario, By, in my opinion, anyway. Okay, well, look, I mean, that's one of the things yeah. where
1: I think you know, yeah. sometimes it's always good to talk about people who have a speciality in it. Oh um, yeah,
0: and who, and we'll never know, right? But I think it's, I think it's. I um, just think
1: the lack of the lack of mention of either they watched this the, anyway. They were they were participants in, not just recipients uh, of
0: absolutely
1: a moment of uh, hundreds of moments of horror. So that was very very difficult because i have to say i had i did the research for his younger life later uh, that wasn't i, I didn't do okay. it chronologically with with him i started So that
0: was probably rather shocking that to sort was of move backwards really backwards yes and, it was it was
1: it was yeah. it was jarring because i had started more with ida and i had been looking at the uh the montefiore hospital for infants the charities they set up in the bronx The work they did with particularly Eastern European immigrants who by far and away at this stage, say the 1900s, 1910s, were were coming into America and they were they were the target, really, of anti-immigration sentiment. So they did need a lot of help and a lot of protection from, uh, particularly if they were Jewish, anti-Semitism was so rife. And and the Strausses were victims of anti-Semitism, you know. And so I I had started, you know, their opposition to Tsarist pogroms, their opposite, you know, all these things. And it was just, it was, the, the thing that made me think of this is a bit, odd was gracie's comments about when they were on the titanic they spent a lot of time talking about the, the the confederacy and how isidore had been a blockade runner in the in the at the early stages of the civil war now i do think isidore was less interested in the confederacy than gracie was i think by a country mile isidore had had you know, the minute they left the South and moved to the His
0: life, life had, his life yeah. had, does excuse his behaviors from when he was younger, but yeah. his life had moved on in a completely different direction. And, and he didn't necessarily identify with the cause. No, no, he didn't. Cause, no, he so didn't. So to speak.
1: He really yeah. did. He was not, it has to be said, he was not a proponent of or in any way interested in the lost mm-hmm. cause. Uh, they That just did not interest Isidore at all. Whereas
0: if you look at someone like Gracie, which, you know, and Gracie's, <laughs> Gracie's interesting too, because, you know, and a lot of people don't realize he died so quickly after it happened either. I, I, I've had several occasions where I've had to tell somebody, another Titanic person that because we think of his memoir. Which you know is a, obviously one of the most well known ones, sure. and you think in your mind if he left a memoir that he must have lived for a while longer, but he dies so quickly. So it's you know it's it's interesting combination because his firsthand account is one that is referenced so much, and we're right. you know at least for well, Titanic he, people, he we're is so a familiar historian.
1: With. I mean, I know I've just said his book is tome like, but but there is <laughs> I, I try I think. Um, I think someone like Colonel Gracie probably was aware that he was living through something historic as it was happening. Yeah. I think if you're a historian you have a certain perspective on time and the passage of time. That's so I would, I would yeah. not be surprised if it dawned on him very probably on the night that yeah. that this was something he you know that this was a moment of significance and you know his memoir on the Titanic is, a, is an incredibly useful source because I think he tried to order His thoughts in a way other survivors struggled to do because he'd already had some experience doing that. But Gracie, you know, first of all, had a tragic, you know, he had lost his daughter in an elevator accident. But also, I I, this is sort of couch psychology, but I suppose that's part of the joy of speculating in conversation rather than on the page.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) But um,
1: I've often wondered did the, you know, did the fact that his father died. Fighting for the Confederacy influenced that? Was there an... Because Gracie really would have been was not old enough to remember a lot of things. He was
0: five, right? When yeah, he, died, he was I a think.
1: child. And to me, there is, the, and it's interesting that the thing he does not touch in that book doesn't go anywhere near is the division within the Confederate command structure at the battle he's writing about. He does not touch it, yeah. and this is a big moment in the, in that battle. Uh, I had to, I you know, went and read later accounts and other accounts from his, and I realized just how it, I, it's not. I'm trying to think what the equivalent would be to leave out of the Titanic. It would be something along the lines of leaving out the Ice Warnings. It would be it would be that level of sort of the story is it's just so yeah. jarring. No, actually, but go further. It's probably like leaving out the women and children on one side of the women and children only rule. Like there's whole chunks of things that just don't make sense if you don't gotcha, include yeah. this breakdown in in the, the command structure at the battle. And to me, he's trying to present something that is it be, takes on a slightly Arthurian mould. He's trying to present, which a lot of the Lost Cause stuff does. It, it talks about the Confederacy as if it's a medieval. Oh, you know, abs- that, it's feudal. Hundred
0: percent. It, it yes.
1: becomes knights, and, and Gone with the Wind is obviously the most famous example of that. That it very much tries to make it look like it's it's almost the French Revolution, but you know, victory, yeah. which the, is which
0: with 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 the losers of a war. Which, right. I, you know, I, I wish I could, I'll have to see if I can find where this was. I was reading something the other day, just about, you know, a news article, because obviously, here in the US, we've got statues coming down. This yeah. is a, you know, a big topic for us as a as a society right now. And someone, God, I have to find this, but they had sort of said, the author said, where show me where else in the world where a group of losers end up with these like statues to themselves yeah. and these yeah, in where's your statue, George III, you know it's
1: like yeah. like it's
0: <laughs> like it's, you know. it's it's really insane that is doesn't come from nowhere that comes from the very purposeful building well, of a narrative and a mythology yeah. and it's it's accounts like Gracie's that do this
1: I do think for people like Gracie there was a need to dial down the role that slavery had played and that in itself tells you that they knew that it was that they knew
0: 100% and i think it's it's um unfortunately still a very fresh, <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, debate for a lot of people, and it 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 boggles the mind. It just well, it, well
1: look, mind I, I was very it. conscious of you know I'm not American, and sometimes I think when you're coming into another country's history, you have to. I don't love it when people you know, kind of tell me, oh, Ireland should be this, Ireland should be that. I think, oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're working it out. Uh, but I think you also, if you, you know, that's then is sort of, I think maybe abdicating the position of a historian, which is that sometimes people from outside can see things a bit more. Mm-hmm. They, I don't have any emotional attachment one way or the other to this. I wasn't brought up in stories of the Civil War. You know, I obviously didn't have any family that, mm-hmm. that fought in it. You know, there were things that Isidore said. I spent a lot of time in the South. I, you know, I've um, done like Thanksgiving with, with some of my closest friends in Mississippi and Tennessee. I love the South. And I think there were things he talks about that really did resonate about how, you know, the hospitality and how much you know and the the manners and the food and all these things that Isidore prays, but really interestingly he does not go anywhere near the politics in his in and he was quite reluctant to write his children wanted him to write a memoir that, that wasn't finished by the time he he lost his life in the Titanic but quite interestingly he wasn't keen on on writing his life stories he wasn't that interested in doing it and I think for Isidore you're right There was a moment that when the war was lost, the war was lost and that was it. And the Confederacy was done and dusted and in the dustbin of history. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas for people like Gracie, it didn't. And in many ways, Mm -hmm. there is a gap. There is a gap after the Civil War where, you know, you you have many survivors on both sides who just want to move on. And it's the next generation, I think, who start to create what you said. They create a story. And also, I I think actually what could have played a factor in the fact that Isidore just wasn't interested in looking back that much was he married, uh, you know, he married a union sympathizer he, he married India and Ida's family were strongly yeah. pro-northern and so I think uh, things started to shift in his perspective in his just in his focus in the immediate years after the, the Civil War and also you know by by the 1910s the cause of the sort of the lost cause and the sort of the um the neo-confederate movement is also enmeshed in anti-semitism
0: so his identity as a Jewish man, Com- further complicates. I mean, everything we've we've sure. just talked about him, which I think is, uh, you know, I people always ask me why I do this. Why do I do this podcast? Why am I so interested in Titanic? I'm sure you've gotten those questions, but yeah, I think this conversation is the perfect example because I mean, I, I don't know about you, but this conversation, I mean, this even went differently than I am. I mean, we you know took some sure some journeys in this conversation. I didn't anticipate, but I mean that in a good way because I think you know of all the thousand things we could talk about with Titanic, here we are talking about you know, one version of a former Confederate, another version right. of a they're, former they're Confederate. The two,
1: they're the two halves. That's a really good... And, and yeah, I, and I
0: who would have thought?
1: Yeah, I wish I'd have read that in it, the book because I didn't. I didn't clock it really until after. But I was like, oh, they're like the the two... Because as a historian, yeah. you're also a writer and you're looking for things to tie oh, together. Oh, yeah.
0: No, like, it's perfect. But it right I think your section... <laughs> I think your section communicate. I mean, I don't think that all these thoughts have been in my head this way if it weren't for your book. So I think your book commun, you know, communi- Even if you don't say that, you know, specifically, it communicates that. And I think, but that's the. Well, that's example a relief because as
1: we were talking, I was like, oh god. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's fantastic, I, and I think it's such a testament to. Uh, you know, Titanic just never stops giving in terms of ways to, you know, open, you know, have conversations that are relevant in, you know, 15 different ways. I mean, look at what we just have touched on in this sure. conversation, you and, know, and all be, coming be off
1: people of, who disagree with us. And that's the point. Oh, and
0: that's Yeah, I, I, I guessed it on um a movie review podcast a few weeks ago. And the host, the host, after he stopped recording, he's like, I hope it's okay that I, you know, I plugged your podcast, but I called it rather political. And he just meant in terms of, I don't shy away from conversations about race and class. And and I said, no, that's, that's not an insult at all. It's actually a huge compliment. Thank you. Because what he was saying was, I was a Titanic podcast that wasn't just espousing all of these old mythologies, but I was kind of challenging some of them. And I took that as a great compliment.
1: Well, it is. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, someone who thinks sometimes the past is an escape from the present because you can first of all you you can disappear into something that's bigger than or smaller than yourself that's the joy of, of history you can pick things but also i i think it can allow us to have these reflections and internal discussions as well i know i mean i've said you know I'm, I'm, we've talked about belfast i certainly had you know it, a lot of not emotional but a lot of moments of introspection and thought about you know how Northern Ireland came to exist, and what my family had gone through, and 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 interestingly, to, to kind of touch a little bit on bias, I come my my whole family, my whole family tree is unionists. They were they were where Andrews was. They were in favour of you know Northern Ireland staying part of the United Kingdom. And I was very aware of that. So uh, when I finished it, I showed the chapter, that draft chapter, to a friend who is an Irish nationalist, would like to see us leave the UK and all Ireland be united. And he came back and he said, it's so anti-unionist. You've tried so hard not to, to veer into what you think you're he's like i don't know why anyone's campaigning to stay part of britain based on this so i then had to go back and redo it because i had tried a little bit too hard to think about and i think but but it, it it that chapter was so important because it made me have a discussion within myself about the past and about how complex it is but also to just allow these conversations to happen these conversations about the past you just put your words down based off the sources and what these people said and felt and you let the reader have that discussion with themselves i'm sure that i mean I'm, in fact i i got um i had a really interesting conversation at a q a with someone who initially they weren't they, by the way this is they weren't angry they were just very firm that they thought that i was far too sympathetic to Isidore Strauss, which was the opposite to what i got oh. at a q a about the Two before that, where they said I was how, how could I be have been so harsh about him? He was only a teenager, he was only a child. This other person's attitude was when you were listing all the other, you know, what he did in those moments in the in the late 1850s and the early 1860s was abominable. And there's no redeeming of that fact. And I understood both perspectives, and I think, you know, I said, Well, it's it's, I'm not your, your priest and I'm not, you know, I'm not here to kind of morally guide you. My job is to put it down here and then we have these discussions. I think the horror of what he participated in stands on its own. And then I just tell the rest of his life story. And it's, there are moments where you wonder, you know, do you need to put your own opinion in a little bit more? And I tend to think if you just pull back and and just tell a really, tell the truth and people will be able to engage with it the best way that they can.
0: I I agree and I um, I've actually but since starting this podcast, I've received a couple of emails from people who um are sort of maybe and not in any malicious way, and I think in a way that they think is polite, basically telling me, you know, how certain people should be written about, spoken about and don't don't veer from that. And you know, no, no threat, no like physical threat or anything like that. But but just a sort of you know like a gatekeeping kind of mm-hmm. hey, I'm watching you, and don't you know, say this about this person. And to me, and and I mean, I don't you know, I don't care. I, thankfully, I'm a I'm a, a stubborn, confident person. Those things don't bother me. But I have noticed with Titanic more than anything I've ever researched or read about that uh there is a bit of people being so attached to the mm. figures in the story that yeah that there is this emotion that even if they just read a book that is <laughs> researched sourced you know like you said you're presenting you're you're presenting the information that you found um but you know i think more titanic more than anything people what they have to say about your book or any book or you know what we might be discussing right now is very much informed by their own values, their own emotions. Of course. Of course. And this uh, this very intense attachment people have to people like the Astors or Guggenheim yeah. or Well,
1: I mean, interestingly uh, another <laughs> friends stop mentioning us but um without giving again any of their details away but another really we
0: haven't given away any details i know about I've, anybody. I've, I've, <laughs> i have
1: learned how to like soft shoes so i don't
0: oh me too yeah
1: <laughs> that's a mistake you only need to make once a really good friend of mine is a is very very strongly socialist and he struggled quite a bit with book's presentation of the conscious of rothas because it just to him aristocrats don't behave that way and that they are the recipients of privilege they are not participants in anything that makes society a better place and I, i said that's great that you feel that way fine whatever but um there's absolutely not one stitch of evidence about this woman that backs up your opinion of her.
0: Exactly. And uh, you've just spent however, you know, so many hours and right. hours and hours digging into the life of this woman and
1: Yeah, you know. I mean, I can, you know, and 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 I had to say I was like you're I was like your political concerns about the upper classes don't negate research that doesn't that's not how this works
0: that's a very dangerous argument to make
1: that you said that you essentially start with what a person is and then you make the conclusion based off that and i i usually i actually think sometimes a, a decent dose of criticism can make you better but there are some things like when they essentially someone says I don't like this person's background, so no, I'm not going to listen to anything positive. And I said, I was like, "You, this book is published. Do you really think that everything I said about this woman, she's one of the main people I focus on. She's actually the start yeah. of the book.
0: <laughs> and By the way, just to side note, I think listeners, if you've already read the book or you're about to read the book, I mean, I think- her stories. I didn't know enough about her heading into. I mean, you really like the way that you wrote her. I thought was. Um, I learned a lot more than I'd ever known about her, and I think is just one of the most kind of moving and interesting, hmm. you know, components of the book. The story of her, um, you know, helping the woman that. Gosh, what was her name? Mary. Oh, Rhoda Abbott. Rhoda. Oh yes, yes, and you know, just her compassion, and I don't know. I had never before your book. I, I don't think I had ever sat down and and read. So much about her in one setting. And I don't think that she's written about enough. She's not. There's so many books that. That detail, you know, some of these big names. Yeah. But for some reason, even in, an, in some British, some American, but they don't, I don't focus know why on her enough. Yeah.
1: I was very surprised. There had been a great article on her by um, Randy Brian Bigum, which I'd read and loved. and But there were, there were no full-length. I was really surprised. There, and even if mm-hmm. there were no full-length studies on her, she's never really prominently featured in any of the Titanic dramas. Which, again, su- was really oh. surprised me, because Period dramas love an aristocrat. And this is, you know, she was, her husband was the 19th Earl of Rothers. She left the Titanic wearing pearls that had been around the neck of a Countess of Rothers when Mary, Queen of Scots, was alive. I mean, really, it was, it was the, she was the, if you want to sort of look at different kinds of, of privilege or whatever, you know, the Countess of Rothers is like the old money with a capital O and M.
0: The oldest The yes. oldest the yeah. oldest and um i do think it's interesting and i mean it's no secret i adore the 97 movie i you know i'm doing sure. episodes on it but i do that is one of my beefs with the movie is the countess of rothas is it rothas it's rothas yeah like, so
1: it's it's yes. one of the things with the british upper classes is there's a lot of anti phonetic little um, traps where the word never looks at the way it's written or it's uh, the, uh, people say they say roths in the movie but it's an <laughs> yeah, old but- Medieval um, Scottish word, so it's Rothas.
0: Yeah, I was th- so that just adds to my beef that it is pronounced wrong in the movie as well. Yeah, but um, but that is one of my beefs with the movie. I think if you're going to, you know, he chose obviously, you know, people like Gracie, a few people to feature, and she's there, but she has nothing really to say. No, and, and she I actually, all- I
1: think it's Rochelle Rose played her, and she. The family, the the current Earl of Roth reached out to her and invited her over afterwards and sort of they were very, very Yeah, there's there's photographs online, I think. And
0: that's kind of cool. Yeah, I yeah. wish wish that she'd had just even like a couple of lines. Yeah, just a couple right. of get to know the countess moments. I think the only thing she really does is, you know, get her hand kissed by Cal, basically. Like yeah. it's her only and scene. And she walks so. out and
1: asks why have we stopped? Oh, She's well, the that's woman of the night. Right. Yeah.
0: That's right, and she's in like the really beautiful night yeah. dress with the which th- the actually curly initially
1: color. I remember seeing it. I thought that's nonsense. She would never walk out in her night dress, but she did. She actually she was traveling on Sea uh, Deck in a stateroom that she was sharing. This were the twin bed rooms, and
0: oh yeah, uh, that's right. And she
1: yeah. um, with Gladys Cherry, who was her husband's cousin. They were traveling over to America. Lord Rothers was on a fact finding mission for the British government and they wanted to spend their 12th wedding anniversary together so she was crossing over for that but she did they did go out into the corridor in their in their night dresses not actually to 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 ask why we stopped they went up on deck but they they did go back out cuz they couldn't find their life jackets the two of them, the, the notices hadn't been put on the back, hadn't been printed. They'd been left. Inside. I
0: remember that. So she yeah. had to go yeah. out and
1: wave someone down and say, where are our life jackets? The one instruction we have received from the captain is put your life jacket on.
0: Well, the um, sometimes yeah. I wonder, you know, a lot of people dig on James Cameron, but I actually, my personal theory is he did a lot more research and had people probably do a lot more research for him than than we even realize because there are a little there are a few little small things that he gets right that's interesting There's, like um
1: the the set is close to perfect i mean it's it, it's it's really on it's it's extraordinary
0: it's, it is and in some of the the personal interactions like um if you notice these scenes probably were were originally longer and got cut but i think a Margaret, lot of the
1: historical stuff got cut from what i've heard did. yeah
0: and uh, you know, there's these moments where, for example, Margaret Brown is interacting with J.J. Astor. But if you look, Cameron knew that they were friends. Yeah, he had researched that because there's the moment where Margaret Brown's getting on the elevator and she calls to J.J. That's the beginning of the movie, and yeah. they're like, "Hey!" And they're they're friends. They're being very casual with one another. That's- they're friends. And and in the dining room, it happens too. And so there are a lot of good little nuggets of moments in that movie where you know, because I know everything so well, I think yeah, I mean, I just I get angry when people do like a just a catch all dig of the movie or of Kame's camera because sure. I think he he you know, there's a the, there are there's a lot there. There's some stuff that's wrong, but there's a yeah, lot I mean, of th- little I mean, I uh, nuggets there. I didn't
1: know until I started researching this that there were a couple of writers who tried to get the a portrayal of ismay softened and essentially we're told no there needs to be a villain um mm-hmm. and that's probably i mean i actually you know i think actually when i started doing social media i i, I did a post where i said like 10 reasons why I rose to whip the is the most annoying person in fiction
0: I, I said, <laughs> oh gosh i'm glad i didn't see that now i'm just
1: kidding <laughs> I, I, I i i find her insufferable but um but
0: no, I see. You know how you said uh, that you are fine with uh, both. Ar- you were when you were giving the example about being fine with both arguments because you, you know, both people were. <laughs> just that's just how like I you- am with these. But that's how I am with these things. It's like I. You know, I'm not one of those people, if I'm passionate, then I... If right. you're not passionate about that thing, don't talk to me. I actually want to... Hear, but but I want yeah. you to tell me why. You know, it's like, that's how I am with things. Sure. So like I see both sides and I want to have the well, conversation. Well, I mean, everything you
1: need to know about Rose is um, take the stairs rather than push a frightened crew member into the elevator of a sinking ship. That's my... Problem. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, also, uh, but, well, this is... This, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it that way. I was like, but that's, take um,
1: the stairs, the ship yeah. is sinking, and these are yeah. mechanical the, elevators. But then on the, flip
0: side, <laughs> the, the flip side of that, though, is that, you know, someone doing a feminist reading of Titanic would say, but, like, look at her empowerment in the moment where she's... But, anyway. Then pull um, the lever but, yourself! Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's, <laughs> Let the poor um, teenage child who is working as the elevator assistant
0: walk on to- that's uh wait what is the date okay January 31st 2022 the day that LA started to turn on 1997's <laughs> Titanic no uh, you may you you may be the only person i've ever talked to that uh said something about rose or that movie that's negative where i'm like okay
1: yeah look i yeah,
0: actually yeah, okay.
1: i <laughs> just i mean I, but i have to say sorry, i may stand by everything oh, i hate her so much but the um the set <laughs> is one of the most extraordinary things hollywood has ever produced it's oh yeah Michael- and i think
0: yeah any even people that are not into the love story or the mm-hmm. movie on a sort of emotional level you know, that seems to be the consensus, is that right. it's, you know, kind of an old-fashioned Hollywood epic, and the sets were perfect, and, it, it um, is an and old, the last... It is a
1: really good way to describe it. It, it mm-hmm. excuse me, it harkens back almost to, you know, things like the, the Vadis or Ben-Hur, these things where they would have huge historical epics, but a love story at the center. That was sort of how they used to to, to do it, and it Absolutely. does feel like it's, it's in the forties.
0: Yeah, and speak about archetypes. I mean, he, Cameron's sort of a master of archetypes. Well, this has been fantastic. I uh, I could talk for eighteen hours. I do have to switch with my husband on uh, kiddo duty, so sure, I've sure. got yeah. Um, I know, but just I hate... it, it
1: ran long. I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. I uh, I seriously mean this. I could talk for hours. But before we go, I d- I wanted to sort of you know wrap up with saying one. I think, you know, the big question that I ask uh, when I have guests on is the sort of why Titanic question, mm-hmm. you know, why is it this ship that, you know, gets people like us into a, yeah. you know, a, a long conversation that we're passionate about that leads to 17 other threads in our research. And, you know, why is this something in our cultural moment? Yeah. And I, I I would love to hear your, you know, if you have sort of a, you know, if after researching it for so long, you feel like you've come up with a good answer for yourself. But I think, I was to say, I think that's kind of the point of your book. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's a lot of that in your book. There's a lot of, you know, obviously, the sort of questioning of, you know, this end of the Edwardian era, how these, these you know, class dynamics are interacting, falling apart, why this story sort of stays in our cultural imagination, mm-hmm. these people do, I think is, you know, not, it's not the overt reason for your book, but I think a lot of that is the threads in your book. So the
1: the one thing I would, the, 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 the slightly, I mean, I've talked a lot about this with the politics and all of, and all of that. And I think that that is in the book and the world and, you know, the manners and the etiquette and the fashion and all the things that make a society, I, I find fascinating. But the one thing I would, I also sometimes have to remind myself off out loud is how much i love the titanic as a ship and i can't explain that and i think a lot of ship enthusiasts will say or people who you know regularly travel by sea have said the same thing that some ships have a slightly mesmerizing quality there are some photographs of the titanic particularly in profile where the sort of the, the the beauty of the ship and and those lines are I find it emotional to look at. I think the Titanic was a beautiful ship. I obviously am close to where so much labour and work and craftsmanship. Gosh, yeah, And Absolutely. and the fact that one of my, my, my late great-grandfather's earliest memory was seeing people weeping in the streets. The only time he ever saw his father cry was when the news broke the Titanic right. had, had gone. Mm-hmm. My papa papa... Um, my great-grandfather, in his later years suffered from um, cognitive decline. Uh, and he could still, one of my last memories of him, is he could remember word for word the songs that the shipyard workers sang in memoriam on the streets of, for the people who died. That always makes me slightly emotional to think about. It's
0: incredible. It's yeah. really,
1: and and to be able to, and I put some of those lyrics in the in the book because I realised they weren't written down anywhere. They were an oral memory that, my papa was illiterate, um, he they... He, so my gra- great grandmother's family came from a, quite a privileged background, and my great grandfather's were didn't they were shipyard workers. And unfortunately, he needed to go to work rather than school. Um, well. But he, but he might have had an, I mean, I wonder sometimes if he have an eidetic memory because he could he could memorize whole chapters of the Bible word for word without being able to. It was extraordinary. I mean, it was like a walking hymnal. Like if there was a if there was a Christian hymn you wanted to hear, he knew the words for it. It was just really extraordinary. But he sang those words, and I thought, well. There's no one left from those streets anymore alive to remember those words, mm-hmm. so I put them in the book. So I think for me, it's this: there is the, the the grand big story around it, but at the heart of it is a truly, I think, a truly beautiful ship, a ship that you that grabs hold of you in an unquantifiable way, and that was the sum and the summit of so much human endeavor and effort, mm-hmm. and hope and pain that it, it is the human story it's an arc of stories for us an arc of of, of human uh, triumph and tragedy that i that i find endlessly fascinating and deeply deeply moving
0: i, I think you may have uh I, I should take what you just said and use it as a sound i get your permission and use it as a soundbite at like the end of each episode because i i think you just summed up basically what i'm trying to say all the time that you know that's very well but and i think um it is, you know, even for me, I, I have no personal ties to, you know, the UK. I have no personal ties to the making of the ship or anybody that was mm-hmm. on it in any real tangible way. But I think I have an emotion. It's like when you said the ship, I sort of, I really felt that. And I've always been really interested in the finding of the wreck as well. Mm-hmm. And that's one big interest of mine has been, you know, I, I did an episode on Bob Ballard recently. So wow. I sort
1: of hardened to to the
0: pun, yeah. dove into all of that. But that's, <laughs> I mean, there's – talk about politics. There's all these different camps about the artifacts and the – Sure. I mean – And do you
1: know that actually – I had um, Ken Marshall's book, that gorgeous Titanic illustrated history book, was mm at present when I was nine. And as a child –
0: Oh, i yeah.
1: couldn't look I was frightened by the paintings of the wreck i didn't look at it, and I was always a bit uncomfortable looking at weirdly looking at photographs of it i it was only work working excuse me on the ship of dreams when i ha- when i could, like like couldn't get away from from looking at
0: and i had to look that you would actually look, well you know, know um, things this this is perfect based on what you just said and my niece is twelve and she got wanted to get interested in it a little bit because she, i told her about my podcast mm. and we, she and I are really close. So I gave her the illustrated history. I, that was, I said, you know, if you want to be a Titanic person and you're interested in that, yeah, it's the one here, it's the one. And um, I was, this was a few months ago and I was just at her house and she has the book on display in her window on a, she bought a special, like, a you know, little insert stand that you put up. Yeah. yeah. And she bought one. And so it's like, the pro- her prized possession oh, on the window in okay. her room and she's 12 and i'm just thinking this is you know so indicative of how meaningful mm-hmm. this ship is and what it represents that someone in the year 2022 yeah. you know in Austin, Texas a 12-year-old is is becoming compelled to learn more and is feeling emotional about it and um she likes she wants to talk about everything you know and so anyway all that to say i i absolutely agree and it's um it's doing this podcast, I've, I mean, this today is the perfect example. I've gotten to speak with so many people and meet so many people and connect with people about this. And the conversation is never the same. It's different every time. Well,
1: there's 2,200 (laughs) people on board. There are 2,000 2000 stories. Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. This has been glorious. I did just want to ask you really quickly. Mm -hmm. I know uh, listeners i um, says readers the readers and listeners hopefully listeners I bet are very curious uh, do you what are you working on right now what are you well do you have any new projects yeah well because I think this is I on? think this is going on Perfect timing
1: um, that we were announcing this. I am working on a book that's coming out in the US in November. It's now available for pre-order. It's called Do Let's Have Another Drink. It's a a collection of stories about the late Queen Mother. So it's 101 anecdotes, one for each year of her life, from her birth in 1900 to her death in 2002. It is taking us through from her Edwardian childhood, her experiences in the First World War, becoming Queen before the Second World War, and, and all the way through... I hope people. I have to say, I don't know if I've it's enjoyed exciting. writing a book as much as this. Um, speaking with some of her friends, some never before published stories. It's oh, wow. just a. It's 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 like a dinner party of a book. It's you, you can open it and dip in and find anecdotes from across the century from this really uh, extraordinary woman and who Hitler called the most dangerous woman in Europe, uh, which <laughs> which has to be the the highest compliment you can receive.
0: That's got to be the highest compliment right. any person has ever yeah. received well, in the, he re- he the really world. He really wanted. Yeah.
1: He was even he was devastated the bombing attack on Buckingham Palace she was Mm -hmm. she was flung across the drawing room into the wall but didn't her and the king weren't killed so yeah do let's have another drink what a
0: great title yeah it's
1: her, her one of her um Staff said it was sort of you know her at the end of meals and her in her 90s, she she'd say oh don't go do let's have another drink so she and
0: I would have gotten along well I- <laughs>
1: yeah she, uh, well I re- I made her drink uh, her favorite drink over Christmas and it was um phew, I think I was only sort of in good health by New Year's
0: um, um, <laughs> oh yeah I, well my my husband and I did um, I had Veronica Hinky on and she wrote the uh, the last night on the Titanic the book with all the cocktails with yeah. all the Titanic cocktails and so the week before I talked to her. I, I was like, let's just ma- let's make some of these drinks, you know. Don't do it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, we have two small kids that we have to get ready for school at like six in the morning. Sure. And I, I mean, I, I told, and I told her this on, I didn't even edit it out of the podcast. I was like, we're, we're like really hung over today, basically, because yeah. we tried one of your cocktails. Well, her, um,
1: the Queen Mother's favorite cocktail was one called Gin and Dubonny. So Gin is the spirit. and I was, I, I, People kept asking, what is Dubonny? So I got some. <laughs> the mixer... Can't stress that part of it enough. Duboni is a fortified wine that was developed to treat malaria... Uh, in 1830s france so it is okay. gin mixed with a fortified wine and it is it is potent i can say that then, then the recipe says something like put in some lemon for zest i'm like oh that'll take away the sting <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i know i my favorite is uh cocktail recipes that are like add okay start with the whiskey then add this liqueur yeah. and then another liqueur and then add a twist of lemon like, what is a twist of lemon nothing. rind going to do for nothing. anything Anyway, um, well that, okay. I love the title. Thank I, you the so way you describe it as a dinner party of a book. That is,
1: I mean, it's, and that you know, I've got a fun. book coming yeah. out like, after I've, I finished a book uh, on Hampton Court called the palace sort of people who've lived at Hampton Court over the years. But the next one coming out is do you, let's have another drink. And it's, um, a lighthearted dinner party of a book that I hope people will enjoy. And it's, it's, and you big- said it's,
0: it's Already on pre order, it's it on pre order, it's United coming out States? November 1st
1: okay. in the US, and okay. um, it's awesome. on it, I think, as of uh, today. Uh, well, it'll be available,
0: yes, on the day uh, we're recording yeah. it before you guys are hearing yeah. it, obviously. But the day so, we're recording so like coming.
1: <laughs> yes, it'll be available for pre order. I hope people enjoy it. I can't tell you how much fun I have had writing this. It's crossway between a dinner party conversation and like a travel guide to a world that just doesn't exist anymore.
0: Which I think is, you know, Titanic that is to many, you know, I mean, that's probably a great way to describe sort of why people um, are enamored of and mm. always want to go back into the Titanic yeah. story in, t- in terms of especially the ship and the food and the you know it's I think it's you know kind of a moment in time that doesn't exist anymore yeah and I think we're and yeah, we don't of, travel some by some ship the-
1: anymore I think people are nostalgic yeah. for transatlantic tra- I do think
0: Absol- that's part of it. absolutely absolutely um well yes people pre-order that's a, I'm going to be pre-ordering right away and do you have – I, I, I didn't look. Do you have, like, a website? Um, I know I, you're
1: on Insta. I'm on Instagram. Um, okay. So underscore Gareth Russell. And I have a Facebook page, um, Gareth Russell, historian and author. But I do okay. need to get a website. That is okay. – that is. All right. But
0: it's so – I mean, social media is where – you know, I have to
1: say Instagram has been so um, – has sort of taken off recently. I And mm-hmm. it, it, it sometimes, I think – It's little things what we talked about. You share images from history and you see what it means to people. I I just love that. Really love it.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's, um, I like that, you know, it's not Facebook is a lot of, you know, it seems like a lot of right. I mean, Instagram, it just seems, yeah, more guttural and emotional. Like, here's a photo. The comments are quick, but I feel like I've really enjoyed it with the pod too. I feel like I'm connecting people. I mean, I get like DMs from people on Insta every day. I open up and someone's starting an incredibly meaningful conversation Mm. with me. And it's, it's kind of, it's incredible to be able to reach people like that. That's a tribute
1: to what you're doing as well. That's a tribute to you and your Well, Thank you. And also I think, when you come to emotional topics, how you handle it is as important as the topic you're handling. So I think that's that's why people are responding to it in such a meaningful way.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, uh, people are. <laughs> I have to say, like when I release this episode, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like shaking a little bit because this has been really exciting for me, and I know from talking to a lot of listeners that you know your book has been a very kind of very crucial moment in their titanic reading and it's meant a lot to a lot of people and so it's been an honor to be able to talk to you and you know and we're all excited for your new book and yeah i just can't i'm gushing again but i can't No, well the honors these
1: have been such great questions and thought-provoking and i think it's it's very touching and very flattering to hear that the book has has meant that to people um and thank you for inviting me on
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, hopefully we can stay in touch and um, yeah, looking forward to your new book. All right. Thank you.